Did you know that there are more Chinese restaurants in America than McDonald's, Burger King, and Kentucky Fried Chicken combined? What makes Americans so crazy about Chinese food? My guest today is journalist and author of the Fortune Cookie Chronicles, Jennifer Eight Lee. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This is One on One. Jennifer and Eight Lee, you are a former New York Times reporter and the author of Fortune Cookie Chronicles Adventures in the World of Chinese Food. And let's just start with that first statistic of, if you look at the number of McDonald's, Burger King's, Kentucky Fried Chicken's, and Wendy's combined, you still have more Chinese food restaurants. More Chinese restaurants, more than 45,000. And growing every year, about 10%. So how is that possible? Because people think, you know what? You have fast food everywhere in the United States, or there's an image. Mm -hmm. So the truth is, is that in fact, Chinese food is- More pervasive. Yeah. More, more a part of who we are exactly. in a way. Exactly, because you know, as I like to say, if you know, if our benchmark for Americanists is apple, apple pie, you should ask yourself, when was the last time you ate apple pie versus when was the last time you ate Chinese food? And I think for the vast, vast majority of people, they will have eaten Chinese food, whether it's General Tso's chicken or beef with broccoli or you know, fried rice more recently. So you grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Yes. In New York City. And in a, you know, what you would say, what, a traditional Chinese family, relatively traditional? Yeah, it was a mom and dad. My parents came over um, in the 1970s as part of the, you know, uh, the, the Open Door Act that sort of let more educated immigrants in and a lot more people from Asia. And then they came here and they had three little babies. Boom, boom, boom. That's me, my sister, and my brother. And By the way, Jay. F-K. It's true. My, my name is Jennifer, my sister's name is Frances, and my brother's name is Kenneth. And if you take our initials, it spells JFK, which my parents like to say is the airport they landed at when they came to America. When you were growing up, um, did you have this kind of constant critical perspective of what is the food that I'm eating as a Chinese uh, firstborn in this country versus what is the food that's being eaten in my Upper West Side, New York City neighborhood, and kind of this, or were, were you just like, you know what, I'm a New Yorker or I'm a Chinese Yeah, immigrant. no, I was like a kid. No, I was a kid, and to be honest, when I was growing up, I loved beef and broccoli and like, you know, roast pork lo mein, and my mom, actually would tell me, you know, that's not real Chinese food. And I'm like, what do you mean it's not real Chinese food? We get it from the Chinese takeout on the corner, right? And so you guys would call? Uh, or I would go down. We didn't have to call because, you know, I, I was like, you know, 10 years old and I'd go, bup, 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 and it's, you know, because it's on the block and you just go and you say, I want beef with broccoli, roast pork fried rice, and your chicken lo mein, a bro you know, some, um, some for uh, uh, egg rolls or two. And we would eat it. And I actually didn't understand that there was that significant a difference between like Chinese food and this takeout until I went to China. Because I just thought like, well, my mom might not be like the greatest cook or, she, or, 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 or the fact, you know, like pizza, like pizza is very different when you get in the cafeteria versus what you get in uh, a restaurant, right? right and so right. I'm just like, oh, maybe like my mom doesn't have like the right, like, you know, um, 
walk or the right kind of stove. So you actually like the Chinese food from the restaurant? Oh, it's so much better. Because it's full of MSG, you know, or it was full of MSG. Your poor mom, did you tell her that? Were you like, Mom, I like the Chinese food from the restaurant? Better. I think she knew. I mean, she's like, oh, that's not real Chinese food. And I couldn't understand what she was talking about, right? But then, you know, we would go to Flushing, which was the, you know, the Chinatown for the Taiwan um, immigrants at that time. And then they would order, like, you know, big fishes with, like, the eyes sticking out or, like, you know, chicken claws or, um, like, you know, cow's tongue. Like, there were all these, like bits of animal that you don't see in American supermarket. And and then I was like, why can't we order beef fried rice or whatever? <laughs> and they're like, that's not Chinese food. Like, don't do that. But in my reference to the world, you know, it was Chinese food. And it was going to China as when I was older that I was able to sort of understand, oh, wait, this is really different, you know? And, and in traveling the world and then also spending a lot of time studying in Taiwan that I understood suddenly like, oh my God, Chinese food adapts. Like when you go to Mexico, there's, you know, they have things that look like fajitas. And if you go to France, you have um, salt and pepper frog legs. And if, you know, so, <laughs> so it's actually only in this larger context, you know, comparative food, that you begin to understand the role that Chinese food has had and how it's sort of adapted, right? So, so were you a foodie when you were growing up? Not particularly. Do you consider yourself a foodie now? You know, I don't actually. I, I think I consider myself sort of like a food like expert and I really enjoy f like food and analyzing food. But the reason I don't is because my boyfriend considers himself a foodie. And, and, and even though he only eats five substances, which is like bread, tofu, cheese, um, <laughs> pasta, and like desserts. Like he's a carbotarian and he gets so upset. Carbotarian? He's a carbotarian. There's a, he's a, he's is this a, another word that you created, Jennifer? Because you're known for actually coming up with words. a few things. I, you created mandate? Man, oh, I, I, popular, I helped popularize mandate, but mandate. I had overheard it in some context. And let's just make it clear, it's not a mandate for Like something. a mandate of heaven, right? It's <laughs> a man. Date. Date, yes. What was the other thing that you popularized? I, um, I think, let's see, what else have I popularized? I popularized the idea that Nevaeh, which is um, heaven's bell backwards, is one of the, is the fastest growing baby name in the United States ever in, in terms of its history. So yeah, no, Carbotarian, I think it's, it should exist. I'm sure if you Googled it, it, it would exist. I happen to you know use it as applied to him. And, and it's interesting because he gets upset because he is a foodie within those very narrow categories. And he, you know, he's like, she's not a foodie. I'm a foodie. You know, she, because to me, food is fascinating from like an intellectual perspective. And I definitely enjoy like, oh, trying that and that. Like, oh, you know, what is like, you know, Sichuan alligator like in terms of Cajun Chinese food? Let's go try it. And so that's I'm, right, because yeah. you did do that, right? There was yeah. the Sichuan uh, yeah. alligator. There was the other, you have these fascinating stories in this book that actually has got, um, well, it was a bestseller, but mm -hmm. it also got like a big cult following. Yeah. Um, there were some other things that, that I remember. There was one about the story of the Chinese food that's kosher in oh. the South yes. that people drive four hours to oh, yeah. and from to get. Totally. The Jews love Chinese food, or as I like to say, the name, you know, why is chow mein the chosen food of the chosen people? And they will go to great lengths. Um, there's a basic, it's basically a, a takeout. It was called High Peking. And it, uh, people would fly. My favorite example is the guy who flew his little plane from Tennessee to Atlanta to pick up, you know, Chinese food for their big, um, synagogue banquet, you know, because it was, it was, it was glot kosher Chinese food. So it was very, very, very specialized. And it's like the only glot kosher Chinese restaurant within 700 miles. And they would deliver, um, 
by FedEx. You know, that that's like pretty hardcore. They would like, you know, cook it, freeze it on dry ice, and then they would you know, ship it. So the what next is day. it? You know, I, I actually, when I was reading your book and I said to people, it's like, gosh, you know, I really hadn't, I mean, I guess if I had thought about it, I would have put the fact that Chinese food and Jewish people yeah. yeah, you're in New York. You'd right, <laughs> but, but like until I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, it's really true. And I hadn't thought about the fact that, that this other great fact, which is Chinese restaurants, their biggest day of sale is... Christmas, by far, yeah. And, and it's really funny because um, if you watched the um, hearings for Elena Kagan the other day, one of the questions they asked her, you know, was like, you know, where were you Christmas Day? Because that was the day of the bombing. And she was at first like very defensive because she didn't know whether it was the terror question or whatever. And they're like, no, we just want to know where you were. And she laughed and said, well, like all Jews, I was probably <laughs> at a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> and in New York City, especially, it's, it's sometimes two, twice as popular, at least, compared to their next popular, their, their, their second most popular day. Because, you know, for a long time, Chinese restaurants were the ones that were open on Christmas, and it just became this interesting American Jewish tradition. But and it's also, specific to America. I mean, it's not like they're doing this in Israel. It's also because of the fact that these are two immigrant groups that exactly. are not Christian. Christian. Yeah, the two largest non-Christian immigrant groups, and they, you know, so Chinese restaurants are open on Sundays, you know, and they're open on Christmas when Jews wanted to go out to eat, where, whereas everyone else was sort of in their day of rest. And other things, you know, Chinese food doesn't use dairy, which is really critical because there was a time when many, many, many more Jews kept kosher, right? Whereas the two other main ethnic cuisines in America are Italian and Mexican, both of which use, you know, significant amounts of dairy. Well, actually, in Mexico, they don't really use that much dairy. Oh, interesting. That's Americanized Mexican uh, food. Yeah. Actually, it's, it's kind of low dairy in Mexico. It's the same yeah. thing, you know, the Mexican food in Mexico is actually totally different. That totally also different. is very shock, like, you know, burritos, like not Mexican. Like, Mexican. what is that all about? I know. No, no, no. <laughs> now they have burritos in Mexico yes. because they want to, it's a strange thing that happens. But, Spaghetti and meatballs, also not Italian. It's this, it's interesting, right? Because it's part of this phenomenon that I call indigenous Chinese um, or sorry, indigenous foreign cuisine, that we think of them as foreign or exotic or ethnic, but in fact, they were developed in America. So, you know, the burritos, spaghetti and meatballs. So what, we, what happens is this book is, tries to make you think twice of like what it means to be American, right? That in fact, you think of it, you may think of it as something foreign, but in fact, people in China, you know, or you know, maybe even Mexico or whatever, don't recognize this food when you show it to them. You know, fortune cookies, of course, are is the is the canonical example, and well, hence why my book. Speaking of fortune cookies, well, yes. you did write a book called yeah. The Fortune Cookie Chronicles, mm -hmm. inspired by this story about fortune cookies and lotto ticket yeah. winners and the fact that all of these people had won this huge lottery. Yes, 110 people came in second, March and, 30th, 2005. And it was all from numbers that they got. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna open it. Now these fortune cookies. These are special. Those are not your typical. These are not your typical. Vanilla fortune cookies, right? These I would eat. I yes, I know, I know. These I really would. I would say that fresh fortune cookies are actually really good, but the ones that have been kind of shipped and. Well, but these are special because they're chocolate, right? Yeah. This is a chocolate. All right, so now we're going to read this fortune. It says, spring has sprung, life is blooming. Oh, you're going to look at this. This has got numbers and everything. Oh, yeah. All right, and, so and now there's a whole, like, learn Chinese phenomenon on um, that has, has you know, been sparked in the last couple of years. From these fortune cookies. So yeah. what do we know, Jennifer, after you wrote your book, The Fortune Cookie Chronicles? What do we know about where these little pieces yeah. of thought 
came to be and yeah. why and, and because they're not actually they're not Chinese and they're not American and in fact you know my like main intellectual contribution to this planet at this point is <laughs> is probably kind of helping to prove that fortune cookies are Japanese in origin and we know this for two reasons one which is still today in Japan outside Kyoto they have small family-run bakeries that are making fortune cookies by hand but they're they're not yellow they're not small they're like this kind of big brown uh, very nutty flavored kind of fortune cookie and they're they don't do them with machines it's a very, very much an artisan craft so that's one and two there is a drawing from the late 1800s that a Japanese researcher dug up through many 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 hours of sifting through the archives in Japan and it shows a man in a kimono you know back then in an etched kind of drawing making fortune cookies and together we know that and so what happened um, is that the Japanese immigrants came to America around the turn of the 20th century and they brought, you know, some of them made, you know, cookies and whatnot for a living and so they brought some of that over with them. And it's, it's been fascinating because it started out sort of very localized, very Californian, kind of like a, you know, a, a very regional thing. But at a certain point, it became a big thing. And we were able to sort of track that back to World War II in part because what happened was they were being kind of served in California, maybe Los Angeles, but m basically in the um, San Francisco Chinatown. And what happened is that San Francisco was such a big port of call, like during World War II, and you had all these soldiers going in and out of San Francisco. Of course, they went to um, the Chinatown in order to eat and to you know watch the singing and the dancing. And then they had these cookies, and they go home after the war. They go to Minnesota, Iowa, and they ask their local Chinese restaurant, "Why don't you have those authentic cookies?" And the Chinese restauranter, <laughs> "What cookies?" You know, and. And, but slowly, within a, a span of basically 15 years, they go from something that's in California to a nationwide phenomenon. But doesn't it also have to do with the fact that the Japanese were interned? Right, right. right. So, so, which I think is the other thing that your book does really interestingly, mm -hmm. which, because it shows how, you know, while food may be incorporated into part of all of us as Americans, right. it's been there's some, there's a, a really tragic hard, story, yeah. sometimes painful, tragic, history behind that yeah, because definitely. part of what gave birth to the fortune cookie was the fact that the Japanese were being interned. Right. So the, the definitely the the idea what I kind of basically figured out and this is something that I pieced together is okay, we know it's Japanese and we know it's you know it's basically Japanese before World War I and by the end of World War II they're like totally Chinese. So how did that jump, you know, happen? And what I kind of pieced together was, you know, talking to these um, you know, rest the, the the families that still have these bakeries that are open. I was like Oh, you know, you've been open for three generations. That's like amazing. They're like, yeah, you know, we've been open almost a hundred years, except for that time when we were all locked up, right? <laughs> oh and my and God. it's it's part of their, you know, so many of them. Some of them were wow. born there. Some of them, you know, had had family members that died in internment camps. And so at, it's sort of at this you know juncture that you see the Chinese moving in, and they take the fortune cookie and they popularize it, you know, because they can make it cheaper and faster and whatnot. And so, as I like to say, the Japanese invented the fortune cookie. The Chinese um, popularized. It, but they ultimately are consumed by Americans. And so, you know, because you locked up all the Japanese, swept up in that were those who made fortune cookies. Hmm. So, you, one of the things that you do in your reporting, you did a lot of this when you were a reporter for the New York Times, mm -hmm. um, and you do it so beautifully in your book, is that you take the invisible masses of workers, food workers, so many of them Chinese, the men who are delivering the Chinese food, um, 
the men and women who are cooking, who are taking the orders, and you basically give them life. Right. Why was it important for you to take that delivery man, mm -hmm. to take that cook at the, at the delivery, at the takeout in, you know, wherever, Alabama, right. and do a story? Why is that important for you? You know, one of the reasons I became a journalist way back when, um, you know, I had this epiphany between high school and college, was listening to someone tell me his story about uh, having, he was 16, he had tried to kill himself twice because he was black and gay and that combination was sort of very, you know, hard on him. And I had this moment where I'm like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. I want to give voice to the voiceless. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, an immigrant background that, you know, growing up you might not have seen these kinds of stories in the media. And what what's, what's kind of been great is, you know, the children of these immigrants who themselves can be like a bridge between, you know, the current, their, their parents' um, kind of generation and then also the mainstream society, we can act as that translator and sort of giving context to stories in a way that's not so like, you know, colonial or sort of, you know, very much kind of like, you know, arm's length that you can write to um, a perspective that you, you, that you can have because you have cultural context. So one of my favorite examples with this Chinese immigrant family that I covered is that if you talk to um, you know, all these Fujinese who are basically the backbone of the Chinese restaurant system here, they, a lot of them come, from New York, come through New York City. And so New York City is their reference to the world, right? So they have New York City and then they have everywhere else. And and well, but what's interesting is that yeah. when they leave China, where they're yeah. leaving is actually a very beautiful place. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of green, right. there's a lot of lakes, mm -hmm. there's a lot of nature. And then they come into New York City. Which is not like green and lakes and nature, basically, except yeah, for maybe so. a small piece of Central Park. And it's a, and for some... It's uh, very tragic. And it's a tremendously long journey. You cover yeah. the story of one man from the Golden Venture. Yes. And his journey was... 120 days, I think. 120 yeah. days. 100, or his journey might have actually been longer, but the boat itself was about 120 days, right? And so... It is, you know, it's it, it, it's this immense exodus, right? So that part of China, which is the northern Fujian province around the capital city of Fuzhou, is the number one Chinese restaurant exporting region in the world. And in, they, in, in China, do they do they kind of own that? Are they like we're we're from this area, we're the Fujianese, and we export Chinese food workers around the world? They. I don't think they're. I don't think they're proud of it. They are proud, maybe, of the fact that they go to America, right? And that they, because they, they can save money. They can build these mansions. They send, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars back um, to these little towns. And then there are these mansions that are weird because they're empty, right? Because a lot, everyone's left. So there's a ghost town called Hoi, which uh, means Monkey Island, which is weird because there are no monkeys and it's not really an island. And they are 80% missing. I mean, you just go in there and there are no men of working age. They're women, they're children, they're old people. Because, you know, they're in America cooking and taking the order and delivering your are Chinese. Are they going to stay here? I mean, is this, because again, with your book, you're basically saying they are part of who we are. Right. When you uh, report on these, on these immigrants, is your sense, Jennifer, that they are here, that they are, okay, we are American, we will, end up staying here? I, th I think, um, so it's interesting. I don't know that they identify necessarily as we are American, but they definitely 
want American citizenship and they want a better child, a better life for their children. But so, some of their children are being sent back, even though they're yes. born here. That's one. That's a was, fascinating thing. This was heartbreaking. So these Fujianese families who come, right. some of them will, and who are working seven days a week in the Chinese restaurants that we're all eating from. Yeah. They will have babies born here. So they're American citizens. So they're American citizens, but then and they'll they send, send them, them back. Because they're be... too busy. Yeah, they're too busy to raise their own children. So you have these kids who are sent back uh, to be raised by grandpa and grandma. And, they're, and then they get they get kind of shipped back to America when they're like ready for school. But they don't know their parents, right? Their parents are almost virtual strangers. And in many cases, there's a lot of heartache and a lot of sort of family issues. And so social workers sort of in and around like Chinatown have been dealing with this issue over time. Time, you know, in, in part over because decades. over decades, yeah, but they call them satellite we, children sometimes. How yeah. come we don't know about these stories? How come these stories, which again, Chinese immigration to this country is not new? No, it's not new. So, yet, so many of these stories are not part of our mainstream understanding. Yeah, I would say that every so once in a while you'll get like the front page quirky, interesting story about the babies being shipped back, and then you do a, you know, you have a story that kind of comes this way with the kids, you know, having trouble in school, but it's not part of the, I would say it, it, that those stories are sort of luxuries to do in part because you have to know the, the community really well. You have to spend time to tell that story in a way that Do you that believe readers, that the mainstream media, I mean, you worked for the New York Times. I would say the New York Times actually did a pretty good job on the issue of of the children in Chinatown through a series of immigration reporters that I actually, you know, um, I don't think I did work on any of those stories directly. But is it still yeah. seen kind of in the media that this is, that the, the Chinese, the Asian population is like this foreign population mm -hmm. and therefore not American and therefore... I think part of, I will say that um, Chinatown as Chinatown gets a surprising amount of coverage, not just in you know in New York City, but in in cities all over the United States, in part because of this exotic factor, for better or for worse. So, if there's a crime or there is some kind of movement or there's some kind of building or there's a conflict, in certain certain kinds of things, they'll cover um, pretty well compared to other immigrant groups, like let's say Koreans or um, Korean Americans or certain kinds of like, maybe even South Asian Americans. I think partially because almost every major city has a Chinatown or something thereof, right? And so in sort of the intellectual mind share of any given city, there's always a fascination with Chinatown and Chinese immigrants. You said that part of why you wanted to write this book was because you wanted you wanted to understand your own Americanness and mm -hmm. you wanted Americans, yeah. all of us, to understand who we are. Right. So what don't we understand and what did you come away understanding better about who you are right. as an American? So, and you have this right. beautiful line in the book that says, if you look at me, you see foreign, right. but if you hear me... Yeah, you hear someone who's American. And it's, and it, it's funny, right, because you'll get this question and maybe you get it too. Um, yes, you know, Often from cab drivers, it's like, so where are you from? And I'm like, and you know, it's New York. And I'm like, well, I'm from here. They're like, no, where are you really from? And often it's interesting from from immigrant people themselves, right? And I'm like, I'm I'm really from here. I was born and raised in New York City, and I live here now. I could not be more from anywhere on this planet. And I know they want to say they really want to know what's your genetic background. I wish there was. I, I just wish there was a socially acceptable way to say I'm genetically Chinese. 
But um, the idea is that you know you can look at me, and if you're and they think you're foreign, which can be useful, you know, if you don't want to speak to them, because you can be like, oh, oh no, speak English, right? But <laughs> you actually do that. I mean, like I've done, you know, like oh, no, speak English. But in <laughs> but in reality, you know, if if you're to if you were to listen to this whole you know tape with your eyes closed, you would hear someone who's totally American. And that was m so stunning to me, not from the context of being in the United States, but from me traveling around the world, and I would meet like. Latino Chinese and French Chinese and Mauritian Chinese and Indian Chinese. Indian Chinese totally weird, right? So they look like me, but they speak Hindi and they wear, you know, or or, or multiple dialects as they're in India, and they have gold chains and they sort of move like you know in in like you know South Asians. And you'll go to Peru where they've had you know a 150 year history of Chinese immigration there. And great. Yeah. Chinese food. And great Chinese food. The best. And they have Chinese men who can dance like salsa, merengue. And I was like, wow, I've never seen such elastic hips on like an Asian guy before, right? And so, so it's what, so, so, so fascinating. So what do you want what do you want us to, to take away from this, Jennifer? I think that first of all, this idea of authenticity or being like true is is sort of an artifact. Like, what does it mean to be authentically Chinese, right? Because I, in a certain way, am authentically Chinese American in a way that General's House Chicken, you know, is not authentically Chinese, but it's authentic to its time and place. And and to to recognize that a lot of these things that um, that being basically American doesn't mean having a Eurocentric view of the world, right? Now, I mean, and it, it's sort of so invisible to us because society just sort of changes and changes, like, and changes. So, like, you, know, you can go to Starbucks and get soy milk, which is not originally something, you know, in America. And, you know, we go to uh, a gym in Harlem, and some of the, the people who are best at yoga, and it's definitely sort of an Americanized yoga, are these, like, big black buff guys, right? You've seen them, right? They're like amazing on their, in their headset. It's not, you know, they probably know more yoga than like the girl, the, you know, the South Asian girls that I went to school with who don't, you know? And so, so, you know, and things like, you know, burritos and the fact that, you know, we celebrate things like Cinco de Mayo sort of just in the air, like, oh, it's time, you know, it's, we're going to have a happy hour. Like these kinds of things as become a big melting pot of what it means to be American. And historically, what's going to happen, I think, is that, you know, that perspective is going to become more expansive. And I would hope that over time, that our understanding of, you know, Americanness becomes broader. And I think all the more powerful now, given who's in the White House, right? That, that you know, the face that we are presenting to a world is not necessarily sort of a, you know, a white, very, you know, Anglo kind of face. Very hopeful stuff yeah. then, Jennifer. Thank you so much. And thank you for all of your work and for being such a great writer and a great journalist. Thank you so much for having me. Continue the conversation at wgbh.org slash one-on-one. -on -one.